Hello, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're continuing our series with the 11 pre-linguistic skills that all toddlers master before words emerge. And again, let me emphasize all toddlers. So this doesn't really matter whether a child talks on time or in that 12 to 15, 16 month period or whether he's later. This is the sequence or the the things, the skills, the prerequisite skills that children have to master even if they're late talkers, even if there's a a language disorder, meaning things are really atypical. These are the things that we look for and these are actually predictive skills and not only beyond talking but really really here we're talking about communicating because we all know if you're a therapist or maybe a parent a child who can talk who can say words but who doesn't use those words to really communicate or who may be using some words but not really understanding and following directions so all of these skills really combine and come together so beautifully and really explain how we all learn to communicate so I hope that in this series of shows that you're really really learning a lot and that you are especially if you're a parent and this is new to you, that your child has just been diagnosed with a language delay, or whether you've known about his issue for a long time and you're just listening to the show, and I hope that this information helps you pull it all together. So let's jump right in. This is show number 391, and today we're going to be talking about the sixth pre-linguistic skill, which is plays with a variety of toys appropriately. Now before we do that, like we've done with every show in this series, let's review all 11 skills. And if you're listening via uh, iTunes or Blog Talk Radio or, or some other podcast platform, you don't see the effort that I have made not to look at my notes <laughs> when I'm going through this 11 skills list because I want to own this information. I want when I'm talking to a mom on the phone, on the phone when she, she's calling for an appointment or there's an initial referral or whether I'm talking with someone, a set of parents who are just coming in for an assessment, I want to know these pre-linguistic skills so that I can use this information and can go through this list and say, start with skill number one, responds to events in the environment. So how does a child react to objects? How does he, how does he start to play? How does he notice things that happen in the environment? Does he alert to sound? Does he alert to voices? And we'll get to that one really in skill two. But how does, when he sees a toy with lights, is his attention drawn there? Can he, uh, localized sound throughout the room. And so those are really, really, really important markers. So that's that's skill number one. And unless a child has a significant neurological difference, newborns come into this world and, and new babies are really, really already honing this skill. And so that's skill number one. Skill number two is response to people. So this skill is that a child learns to react to other people. And so he consistently makes eye contact. He consistently wants to stay with you. He, he, he wants, he craves your attention. And you can tell that not only, you know, initiating is skill number 11, which we'll get to, but when you try to talk to him, he, he loves it. He lights up. He stays with you. He's completely engaged and enthralled with other people. So 
that's what we want to see in skill number two. And kids who don't do that are really, really, really at a risk for autism or another pretty serious developmental difference that affects their ability to interact with other people socially. And it's such an important foundational skill for learning how to communicate because it communicating always involves at least two people. So that's skill number two, and that's the second thing that we should be talking to parents about and really asking them, how does your child respond to other people? Tell me how he, how he, what he does when someone calls his name. How does he react when someone is talking to him? Is it a chore to get him to stay with you? And you just walk through this list of skills. And again, if you're a therapist, this is what you should be doing when you meet a new family or even a family that you've had for a while and you think, things aren't moving along here. I'm disappointed with our, our lack of uh, progress or our speed here. Let me back up. Let me get down to these really just dig into these foundational pieces. So this might be a conversation that you might have with a family that you've seen for weeks or months and you really, really want to kind of get back to the root of this is this is our foundation here and we're gonna we're gonna figure out what's going on because these 11 skills will give you a pretty good idea of why a child isn't communicating yet so that was skill number two skill number three is begins turn taking what does that mean that means that a child takes it beyond that responding to other people he knows that he's got to stay with you and there's some reciprocity there's some back and forth flow to this uh, interaction that's going on between him and another person. So, and again, this may not be verbally, and if he's he's pre-linguistic, he's not talking yet. So it's even in that nonverbal uh, phase, will he trade little gestures with you? Will he trade objects with you? Will he sit and again, you do something funny and he does something funny. And so there's that nice exchange that starts to happen. And, and, and remember too, it's not with words, it's not with answering questions, but kids who don't do this turn-taking piece really well, don't get to that conversational piece very easily because this is the skill they're missing. And kids always do things non-verbally before we see them do it verbally. So that's skill number three, begins turn-taking. Skill number four is develops an attention span. So this means that children start to stay with activities for longer periods of time. And if you'll go back and listen to the show about that, I wish I could recall the number, but I can't. I, I, I'm an SOP. I don't do math. I can't even sit here kind of and go backwards and think about it while I'm talking about something else. But develop some longer attention span. We, in that show, talked about the research that says that a toddler's, a typically developing toddler's attention span is three to six minutes, and he's going to need adult support to continue to sustain attention to an activity, especially when it's a non-preferred activity for longer amounts of time only by an adult really structuring that situation, staying with him and kind of helping him stay on task and redirecting his attention. There are children, though, some of you as parents may be thinking, well, that's not a big deal, and hallelujah for you if your child has a great attention span. But there are lots of us, lots of us therapists and lots of us parents who uh, parent late-talking toddlers or toddlers with more serious developmental issues, language delays, language disorders, who know that uh, our kids don't have that kind of attention span and they are just gone in a split second. They may give some visual attention or some auditory attention to something and then boom, it's gone. They've, they've moved on to the next thing. So develops a longer attention span is really, really important. Skill number five is what we talked about last week and that's learning uh, to shift and share attention. So that's what therapists refer to as joint attention. And again, it's that ability for a child to be able to 
I call it walk and chew gum at the same time. He's got to be able to, and not literally, this is just an example or a reference with how we learn how to do two things at once. And so a child, and and this may not, this example may not ring true all the time, but it's something that I've found that parents understand. He has to be able to look at at an object that you guys are talking about together and let's just use my Getty, which we use every week, I think, because it's, unless I have toys here, it's the closest thing for me to grab. But a kid has to know when you're talking about the cup that he's drinking from, that you're saying, oh, there's your cup, what's in your cup? And he's looking at the cup, and then he's looking at you, and he's looking at the cup, and he's looking at you. And that's what I mean by doing two things at once. He can shift his attention from object to object, and he can, or object to person, or object to object, and with you. And But he there, there are three points of attention there. The kid you and what you're sharing what experience you're sharing and again it's such an important uh, skill for a child to master for language development because he's got to pay attention to what you're talking about so that he learns how to link meaning with words and so skill number five that's what we talked about in the last show and that was skill no- that was show number 390 I, I can do it when it's one <laughs> that was show number 390 so go back and listen to that if you aren't really sure what I'm talking about when I say join attention or if you're a therapist and you're you're listening or watching out of sequence it is such an important skill to master and to understand because lots of us as adults get faked out all the time by thinking that a kid is really including us when he's not so go listen for those tips and I've gotten such good emails from therapists and from parents who say that show has really really helped them think about a child in in a different way and really uh, back up so that they're working on joint attention now and and really thinking about that as as such an important piece in a child's therapy plan skill number six is what we're going to talk about today which is plays appropriately with a variety of familiar toys and that also goes over uh, includes objects in everyday routines and so we're going to talk about why that's important today and then in the next coming weeks we're going to finish this series by talking about skill number seven which uh, deals with receptive language so how does a child understand words how can he follow directions such an important piece of language development especially for we as professionals to share with parents if a child doesn't understand words he's very unlikely to use those words meaningfully so we have to be sure that children understand what words mean and again how do we know that they demonstrate it there's evidence of that so they're following our directions they're doing things that we ask them or tell them to do and so that's skill number seven skill number eight is that a child vocalizes intentionally and this is just kind of a no-brainer because unless you can turn your voice on you're not going to be able to talk (laughs) people won't be able to uh, hear you you've got to get that vocalization piece in and then we shape those vocalizations and turn those into meaningful utterances which we call words and typically developing babies practice with their little voices all the time you hear them babbling in the car seat as you're driving you hear them in their cribs when they're trying to go to sleep or when they're waking up, you hear them in the tub. You know, if you turn around or do, do some, you know, divert your attention for a minute, you start to hear them practicing. They're they're using their little voices, and there's some children, particularly with speech delays, meaning there's the, with the sound production, who don't vocalize very much, who who aren't very noisy, and that's a really important part of learning how to talk too. And there are very specific speech diagnoses which uh, we start to think about when we don't hear a child who's who makes very much noise intentionally. I mean, he might cry and he might whine or yell a little bit. And I guess whining would even be taken out of that because whining's pretty intentional, isn't it? And so, again, there are kids, when kids are really, really quiet, 
we start to worry about that and we know that that's something we have to do is get get their little voices turned on and get them going so that's what we'll be talking about in two shows skill number nine and I just looked down I wish I hadn't looked down but it's imitation and it's one of my very favorite things to talk about how does a child imitate you? Can he imitate your actions? Can he imitate uh, your gestures or your body movements? Does he move on up to sounds and play words and then exclamatory words? Does he do verbal routines? Can he imitate words and phrases? And again, you heard me go through that whole continuum. So it doesn't just start when a child is able to imitate words. It starts way back at actions and body movements. So that's skill number nine. Skill number 10 is he uses gestures appropriately to communicate. So these are kids that can wave bye-bye. These are kids that let you know what they want by pointing and really, again, directing your verbal attention by showing you exactly what it is that they want. They're kids that shake their heads or nod their heads yes and shake their heads no. These are kids that understand that gestures are meaningful and they do something with their body symbolically or an action with their body to represent a message or to represent a word. So that's why gestures are so, so, so important. That's skill number 10. And then finally, skill number 11 is that a child initiates interaction with other people. He doesn't just respond. He knows how to get your attention too. And we'll talk about how important that is when we get to that skill. And that's something that so many of our little guys with more significant developmental delays really, really lack. And even those kids who were poor social responders may also have difficulty in, uh, initiating as well, which really puts them at a disadvantage to communicate with other people because they don't know how to how to react or respond when someone else takes the lead and then they don't know how to take the lead either and so these are again are really 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 important skills and I hope that you're learning this series and enjoying this as much as I'm enjoying teaching it because every time I write a therapy manual or do a series like this and really have to prepare and go back and read and read and read and study and study and study it makes me a better therapist and so uh, that's a lesson to you as a therapist too or another professional anytime you have to teach something and guess what you teach all day long you teach parents you teach teachers you teach grandparents you teach anyone else who's involved with a child or a family that you're working with and that makes you better so be sure that you're you know I, I would suspect that you were already doing that because you're listening to this show or watching this video maybe to get your CE credits but a lot of times it's just to make you better at what you do and so congratulations to you and becoming a teacher of this actually again makes you so much better it really really hones your craft okay so let's talk about pre-linguistic skill number six which is plays appropriately with a variety of toys so what does this mean? Well, there are a lot of words here. This means that a child explores toys. So he, he has that initial pull, that initial drive that he wants to see what something's about. He wants to check it out. It means that he likes it. He doesn't just look at it and then, eh, meh. You know, he cares. He wants to stay with that object. He wants to play. Next, he uses his or her little body to manipulate those toys. So it goes beyond that visual attention. He's really trying to get in there and really see what that toy can do or see how to use that object. And again, he's doing a lot of this with his hands. So our little guys who have motor delays or motor uh, deficits are at a real disadvantage a lot of times with play because they don't have the strength or the coordination to be able to use toys appropriately. So this is a real, real big 
um, consideration for us with our little guys with cerebral palsy, sometimes with our little guys with Down syndrome. And again, we're not even talking about the cognitive piece or, or anything that would cause muscle tone differences. So whether that be low muscle tone or high muscle tone, so you know, hypertonia or hypotonia, if you're a parent kind of hearing that and wondering if that means the same thing, yeah. So if a child's had some gross motor delays, meaning that he's had difficulty learning how to roll over and then sit up and then creep and crawl and, and uh, you know, walk with uh, holding on to the couch or furniture and then finally walk independently. So many of those kids have difficulty with fine motor skills as well because their gross motor development has been such a challenge for them. And so this is something that's really, really important. And a lot of times as therapists, especially speech language pathologists, we think, why do we worry about that? That's the OT's job, or that's the PT's job, or that's, that's out of my scope of practice. Guys, we've got to know enough and understand enough about motor development, and then not only that that motor piece really, really drives cognitive development too. So when a child can't play with toys because of motor difficulties, he's missing out on so many opportunities to learn language. And and when you think about it, play is how little kids learn almost everything. <laughs> and so just that ability to, again, sit with a toy and learn through cause and effect and learn through simple problem solving and just that trial and error is such an important piece. And so when kids have motor issues, that makes it really, really difficult for them. We've talked about the attention piece back in skill number four. When kids can't stay with the toy long enough, they're also going to have a hard time learning through play because they don't give themselves enough time to master whatever skill it might be that they that they are acquiring when they're playing with toys. And again, this cognitive piece is so, so important with play. And really, it's the best very best way that we can really look at what's going on in a child's little brain because it gives us such a window into their cognitive development. Are they remembering things from their past play experiences? Are they combining and linking information? So that do they understand that they can take the tractor and then the little farmer and they can put the farmer in the tractor and join that idea and they can hook the wagon they're joining another idea and they can put a cow in the wagon they've joined something else and then they can drive that uh, tractor to the barn their pretend play that's all that's come together and it really really again gives us the very best insight into a child's cognitive development particularly when he's not talking yet when he can't tell you that he knows and understands all of these things so play is just such a critical piece that we as therapists need to be paying so much attention to and there's a big problem with play because a lot of times parents don't value it like they should and so many of our parents kind of get into that loop of I want my child to do something educational so they they divert their a child's attention to an iPad or uh, some other kind of device to a screen and and they think that they're doing a good job they think that oh this is educational I know he's going to learn from this but research will always confirm what all of us already know that real life is better and kids are always going to learn better from a real person than they do from a screen and so we might use a screen as a supplement. We might uh, you know, use an educational video as an idea for them or mostly an idea for us. It gives us an idea of what their interests are. It gives us an idea of what holds their attention. And it also gives them kind of a, a visual model of how play should look. Now, again, I'm not saying that screen, I, I'm, I'm not saying that a screen will ever, 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 ever replace human interaction, but it can be a tool if the adults will use it correctly.
and if you will realize that you've got to be an active participant in that screen time and you've got to use it again to look at what a child's interests are and then carry that over to real life so that a child can match that and can use that experience and that experience can come to life. So uh, again, super, super important thing, but a lot of parents really do divert their children's attention with well intentions away from just playing with familiar toys. And so anytime a parent says to me, my child doesn't like toys, my child, you know, he just doesn't like to play, I always, always talk to them about it. That's not really the problem. The problem usually is that is that your child can't play. He doesn't know how to play with toys. And again, we explore those reasons. Is it a motor problem? Is it an attention problem? Is it a cognitive problem? And so we kind of look at what that is. Is there just very little motivation, meaning that you know, you've got uh, very little, you don't have very many toys to start with. And so you haven't really gotten anything that, that he does like. Sometimes that does happen. But a lot of, you know, the motivational piece, but a lot of times it really is that the, there's something missing. There's some, there's some core skill that's missing. And so when you figure that out and you address that, play gets better. And the strategies that we're going to talk about today, too, will really, really help parents, particularly those parents who say, my child doesn't like toys. You can really, really help a parent see that that's not it and that we've got to give children some support so that they can learn how to play and that we have to teach them how to play just like we teach them everything else. And kids who really have language delays, especially when there are receptive language delays, which tell you that their cognitive skills aren't developing as expected for a toddler or a preschooler their age, or those motor impairments. I mean, we, act, we, we know those kids are gonna have difficulty learning how to play. And when they have difficulty learning how to play, they're gonna have difficulty learning how to do their own everyday activities. And so you've gotta really, really, really think about that and how this skill will make such a functional difference in a kid's life or in a family's life. So that's, that's uh, why these play skills are really, really important for parents. And if you have a hard time as a therapist making that connection with parents, go back rewind <laughs> whether you're listening to the podcast or whether you are watching this on YouTube or at my website at teach me to talk uh, go back and listen to that because those are the things you need to be talking to parents about is this a motor problem is this a social problem is this an attention problem and there may be some other things that I'm not even talking about and there's sometimes things that are uh, particularly uh, specific to a particular child or family. You know, is there a lack of toys? Again, that motivational component is not always the reason, but sometimes it is, especially when you're seeing children who really are economically disadvantaged. And, you know, I've shared over and over how I've recently moved to a new area of my state, and there's a lot of poverty here, uh, things that I've, I've never seen before uh, in real life. And so, a lot of times that that really is it. It's a lack of opportunity, lack of exposure. And so you talk to parents about that and you help them solve those problems and, and, and figure out ways to help kids acquire these skills. Even without toys with uh, fancy bells and whistles, we need to be helping parents. So still look at meeting those, those basic needs and, and helping their children learn with whatever materials they have available. All right, so we've talked about what play is and we've talked about why play is important. Let's move on right now and talk about, and we've talked about how it's linked to language development, that it really is the, the foundation for cognition and we have to build language. You know, that great quote that I say all the time that's from this 
uh, behaviorist, so from an ABA guy, we cannot do anything with words until they are built on what was there before words existed. So this is the book, what play is what happens before words exist. It's the nonverbal part of cognition. And so we really, really, again, have to make that connection with parents and say, if a kid can't do this concretely, like we were just talking about the example with the tractor and putting the farmer in the tractor and then joining the wagon and putting the cow in and then driving that wagon to the barn. If a kid can't put all those ideas together non-verbally, He's certainly not going to be able to do it verbally. So he's not going to be able to say, can I have the tractor? Or that tractor is green. Or, oh, good idea. Let's put the cow in the wagon. No, I want the pig. He can't do any of that, any of that with words until he can do it with those objects first. So that's a great way to talk to parents about it. And, you know, I'll get emails. I got an email, gosh, a couple weeks ago from a fantastic mom who said, and she heard a previous show on play. I think it was the seven steps to teaching pretend play, which we're going to sort of talk about today. But she heard that show on play, and she um, really, really and wrote me, emailed me, and I emailed her back and um, talked about how important joining ideas are in play. And then she said in her email, that, and she, that she had a hard time getting her therapist on board because they were working on all these other things and, you know, just adding one more goal to the list. Sometimes it's exhausting and you think, I've got so many other things, why do I want to try to tackle this? But she really, you know, I zoned in on that because I'd had so many kids like that that I, when I read her email, that that was the piece they were missing. He couldn't join ideas yet. So because of that, he couldn't do phrases, and his language was kind of at a stall. And so when they doubled down on play and really focused on this, she said it really, really opened a new door. And he did start to be able to do phrases, and he did start to be, you know, they saw a maturation of those play skills because they were giving him that support and really teaching him how to play. So that's what I hope that you'll get from this uh, show today, too, is, is really, really know how to explain the importance of play and then carry it out. All right, so what are our best strategies here? Let's kind of switch gears. Let's talk about now what we can do when a child isn't playing with a variety of toys. And variety is super important too. With our little guys who are just fixated on their little, whatever their little passion is. Let's say he only loves, let's use something really stereotypical here like Thomas the Train. He only likes trains. And so he's obsessed with trains. And because you know that he likes trains as a parent, you've bought him 35 trains. And he has every Thomas uh accessory that you could come up with but you know unless he's really playing with those things unless <coughs> excuse me unless he's really using those toys he's not developing that variety of skills that we want to see and why do we want a variety because we can't none of us when we are super focused on one thing uh it's terrible when you can't do anything else you know and again not to be disrespectful or, or use this other than just an example, you really can't have be, be a one-trick pony. <laughs> You've got to be able to do a lot of different things, especially motorically, so that you can get through your day. And we talked about the connection between play, kids who learn how to play, and then kids who make progress with, with their self-care skills because they learn how to use tools, and they only learn that usually through play. And so we have kids who can't feed themselves and who won't brush their teeth, their teeth, 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 and who don't, uh, you know, who can't really brush their hair, and in the bathtub, everything's still so passive. They're not learning how to help mom and dad uh, pull up their pants. You know, the, one of the reasons they can't get potty trained, you know, in addition to the other reasons, is they really can't manipulate their clothes. Until children 
learn how to play, you're not going to see that bump in what our OT friends call ADLs, activities of daily living. You're just not. So play is where we're going to really, really again practice those skills and give kids opportunities to learn how to do that and so our very best number one strategy for helping a toddler learn how to play appropriately with a variety of toys is to really understand how play skills emerge and figure out where a kid is in this and so um, if you are a parent or a therapist who hasn't taken advantage of our five dollar ceu program one of the best benefits of that especially if you like lists and you like seeing what i'm talking about is uh, getting that uh, or paying for that $5 CEU course because the, it comes with a handout and I have today's ready. Um, I just saw a couple of typos that I want to take a look at, but I have today's ready. And one of the thing about this show, and so if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you can go to my website at teachmetotalk.com and find this show, which is show number 391. And if there's always a handout that goes with it. But the kicker is it's really for uh, uh, therapists who are getting continuing education credit but a lot of parents have told me that they're going ahead and getting the handouts uh, for the courses because they've liked them so much and they've been able to share it with grandparents and share it with therapists who are working with their children and saying hey this is what I'm concerned about but one of the things today that I want to talk to you about that's uh, recorded so nicely on the handout are these stages of play and so you've got to figure out where a kid is in this continuum of how play develops meet him there really master where that play is that that most basic level of play that he shows you all day long not a little splinter skill that one time two weeks ago he sort of did this i'm talking about where he where he lives with his play skills you start there and then you you expand that that stage with introducing other kinds of play making sure he's really really mastered those skills and then you bump up just a little bit to the the next little step and so when you look at these stages it can give you just, oh, such important information about how a child is functioning. The other thing that uh, Dr. Carol Westby really pioneered was linking play with language development. And she really talks about that a child's uh, play will never, let's, okay, let me back up and not say this incorrectly. A child's language development really, really mirrors his play in that if he hasn't mastered it in play, he won't be able to do it in language. And again, there may be some specific diagnoses that you might find an outlier, but for the most part, that statement is so true. And we talked about it a second ago. This is the third time I'm gonna mention it here. Until a kid can join ideas non-verbally, he's not going to be able to do it verbally. So that's how we link play and language development. So let's look at these stages really quickly. And this information is also not only in that little five buck handout, but it's also in this gigantic therapy manual. Let's talk about talking. And a super, super manual that walks through all these 11 skills and not only explains what the skills are, why they're important to language development, but the very best thing is that you get a written record, <laughs> a summary of the very best activities and strategies that I've found to target these 11 skills in my career, and then of course pulling from uh, work of other 
uh, work of experts, so work of other people who do this job and who study uh, language development and linguistic skills and pre-linguistic skills, so take a look at the manual, but the, the shorter cheat sheet is getting that CEU summary from show number 391. So the first stage here is exploratory play. So what is that? That's just sensory exploration of play. So that's, again, we talked about like back in pre-linguistic skill number one. How does a child react to events in the environment? So how does he explore toys? What does he do when there's a toy with a visual feature like lights? or something that spins. Is his attention drawn to that? Does he want to seek it out? Does he want to get his little hands on it? Does he hear a toy? Does he respond to that when he hears a toy that makes noise or makes music? And so that exploratory play thing, a lot of times kids in this phase are still doing a lot of oral exploration, meaning that toys are in their mouths, and that's okay because that's where they are developmentally. Uh, mouthing toys is developmentally appropriate until a child is about two, so about 24 months, and after that we want to see a decline in that behavior. However, if a kid, even though he's chronologically two, if he's developmentally not two, we're still going to see that mouthing piece. And so again, think about that, talk about that with parents, especially with our little friends who have significant cognitive issues. And so their, their developmental age or their mental age or language age is not cognitive age is not um, at their chronological age. And so we're gonna see that disparity there. And in play, we're really, really gonna see it. So that's, that's stage one. And again, most children who don't have just significant neurological issues are going to be, or, or another, uh, you know, it might be physiological. It really might be just a motor issue there. Maybe they've had an injury. Or, or again, it's everything is fine cognitively, but there's just a physiological issue with their hands or their arms. Those children, again, um, un unless that's happening, kids are beyond this exploratory uh, play phase. The next stage is not, or they don't. Let's say this: they don't have difficulty after they don't have difficulty moving on. There's not a reason that they're going to stay in that stage. A medical reason. Um, you know, for a long, long time. Stage number two, non-functional play. These are where babies start to really, and toddlers, handle toys more. They start to bang toys together. They start to do things beyond mouth the toys. They start to throw toys. They start to see how objects fit in other objects. So that's why container play is such a big thing at this stage. So any kind of toy that would support early cognitive and motor skill development. So little links, they're holding them with their hands, blocks. It takes a different kind of graph to do that. They are shifting objects between their hands. They're really, really looking at the toy in their hand and really doing different things with it, but not just based on did I drop it, did I did it fall out of my hand, did I get distracted and just forget about it and let it go. Not that. They are really, really purposeful and really developing that eye-hand coordination. So that's stage two, non-functional play. Stage three is beginning functional play. So this is where kids start to play appropriately with familiar toys. They know that they should stack the blocks. They know that they should roll the ball or kick the ball or throw the ball. They know that if there's a hairbrush there, that they should brush their hair. They start to they roll a car. They start to really understand what toys are for. And you see more functional play versus what you saw in stage two, where they were just moving it around with their hands, putting it in their mouths. And again, you might see some rudimentary uh, activities like banging or dropping or that kind of thing but now it's more purposeful you can see ah he understands more he's using that better 
The next stage, stage four, is really early symbolic play. So that's beginning pretend play with common objects. So not only does he get a cup and know that he can take a drink from the cup, which a lot of times parents think that's pretending. Well, really, if you look at the child, they're confused <laughs> that there's not anything in that cup because they expected there to be something in that cup. So this, this stage, the kid not only is, is drinking, and you can see that he's pretending because he's doing something like slurping, but he's also trying to give that cup to the baby doll or to you so that you can pretend to drink too. And so again, it's more than just using the object functionally. There is a pretending component. So they're they're, they're pretending that there's food in the bowl when they're stirring it, and then they're giving the baby a bite, and there's no food on the spoon. And so they're doing that, and they're not... They're not upset. You know, I can tell when a kid isn't to this symbolic play part because when they are looking at the spoon and the food, then they're looking at me or looking at their moms like, where is it? Or they're dumping it like, where is that food? And you really, again, as a therapist, need to start to look at these things and point this out to parents and say, gosh, look at this. Now, he really thinks there should be something in that bowl because he's not understanding. He doesn't, you know, kids who are starting to pretend really pretend like they're stirring and then they give the baby a bite. And we're not seeing any of that yet. So he's not really pretending yet. He's in that stage before where he knows what the bowl and the spoon are for because he's trying to eat but can't you see that he really he's really not at that next level yet and so again that information is so important for parents and so and, and you've got to figure out how to say that I might not have said that in the best way then you know can't you see that he's not you don't want to do that <laughs> you don't want to do that but you're explaining it to parents where they understand it and where they start to come to these conclusions and really, really start to notice these things. You've pointed it out first, but when they go home, they really start to think about it. Even if they don't agree with you at the beginning, they start to really listen and think, you know, she could be right about that. And they may see you on Tuesday and not come around until Saturday or Sunday <laughs> that they've had time to kind of digest and process that information. And so you really, really want to give them uh, this kind of information. And the things that you, your observations that you're making you want to be sure that you're telling parents and kind of connecting the dots for them too because you may think, well, of course mom knows he's not doing pretend play. Don't count on it. Don't count on it unless she tells you and unless you hear her say that or unless you're telling her because a lot of times parents, we think they're understanding a lot more about where their child is developmentally than they really are. And so you have to give that information and that's why they're there. That's why they've come to you. And as a parent, you're probably sitting there going, yeah, I want my therapist to tell me. And sometimes therapists, we get so timid, we think, well, we're not going to say that. She knows that. That's, that's going to be really condescending if I talk about that. Uh-uh. I have treated pediatricians' children that I th I'll make the most casual observation and say it out loud, and they will say, you know, I've never thought about it like that before, or I didn't notice that before, or as one mom that I saw her child years and years ago, just, oh gosh, such a wonderful woman and physician, and she would say, Laura, I'm trained in medical. I'm not trained in developmental. The developmental stuff, I learned that, but it is totally different than the kind of training that I received. You know, that was a one court, that was a one day. <laughs> and this medical stuff, you know, just, just much more uh, important and emphasized, and rightly so, because that's what doctors do. They treat illnesses and, and injuries, right? There's a medical component there. And so, again, sometimes, unless they're a developmental pediatrician and have really done additional training, they don't always know. And again, I know this because I've had pediatrician after pediatrician after pediatrician tell me or say something that lets me know, gosh, he doesn't understand this at all. And so we really, really, really have to not 
you know, if that's happening with our most educated parents, what is what, you know, what is it like for the rest of us people? <laughs> and so you have to really talk to parents that again, don't as a therapist sometimes, especially a new therapist, you start feeling like, well, everybody knows this stuff. This is just common sense. Uh uh-uh. uh. You got a master's degree to teach you this stuff and you and you still don't know it all either, do you? You're learning every day. And so you have to really help parents walk through this process too because they don't know it either. All right, the next stage is combining play actions with familiar routines, and that's performing several different actions with toys, mimicking everyday activities. So this is where a kid will put a baby doll to sleep, or like we talked about before, feed a baby or any kind of little symbolic play that, or they're pretending like they are getting in the car, and dr- car their little pretend car, and driving and going to the grocery store, or going to school, or going to the library or the park or wherever you go. And you can see that there's a big pretend component there, but they are combining things. I'm going to, I'm going to pretend like I'm getting my backpack and I'm getting in my little, my little pretend, my little car here, and I'm going to, you know, bye bye, mama, you know going to school and then they drive away you know they put up their little feet and go away or whatever kind of vehicle it is they're combining ideas there and so you know then beyond that stage six is expanding play routine so it becomes even bigger so now they're pretending with uh, less frequent activities so something like going to the doctor or going to the zoo or having a birthday party something they don't do all the time and then lastly stage seven is early role play and games with rules so this is where kids really start to do dress up and they play little games with their friends and it might be something like tag or chase but a lot of times it's just something that starts with like one kid is the baby and one kid is the mama and so those kinds of things happen and so that I walked you through those stages of play but, the, but here, if we're looking at a kid with a, uh, that, that really isn't communicating yet, he's probably up in that first one through four stages. So figure out where a kid is. And again, the reason that you do that is so that you don't start at a level that's too high. And so if you're trying to do a lot of pretend play with a kid who's back at non-functional play, you've skipped some stages. <laughs> you've skipped the functional play where he's just learning how to use objects. And you're trying to get him to feed the baby doll and he, again, is like that example we talked about before. He's still expecting there to be food there. <laughs> and so you've got to really figure out where a kid is so that you can meet him where he is and get in that just right developmental place so that you can make some progress. All right, so what do you do for a kid, again, who's not bumping up to that next level? Let's say that you've got a kid who's really kind of stuck in exploratory play, and he's two, and he's still just kind of roaming around his house, and you see him pick up toys and he looks at it for a little bit and you know for 10 seconds and then he's done with it you know that's a kid who's doing a lot of exploratory play well those kids you move them up to non-functional play so you'd start to do some container play you start to do some play which again would support early cognitive development like object permanence you start to hide some toys and see if he can find them because he's got to master the idea that this, the toy is still there the concreteness of that object it's not just gone if he doesn't see it and so uh, object permanence is such an important cognitive concept and it emerges in typically developing babies before that first birthday and so it's when we have a little guy who's 15 months or 22 months or four who doesn't understand object permanence that's where we start we've got to kind of bump we've got to we've kind of bump him up so that he gets that that next little cognitive leap so that he understands that the next really important cognitive skill here is cause and effect does a child understand that i do something and then something happens so something like a ball and hammer toy does he understand 
I need to use the hammer to get the ball down in the hole so it will fall down and go through, go down the little ramp and come out the door at the bottom. If you can't use the tool to see understand, can I bang my hand on it? If I bang my hand on the ball, will the toy go through? And so again, that cause and effect thing. Does he understand? I push the button and then the the lid pops open on the toy. The top pops open. A lot of times kids get so stuck with the button pushing they're so perseverative about that that they don't they they under they get the cause but they don't pay attention to the effect and that lets you know gosh there's something missing here there's this cognitive link that's gone or absent and so we have to help a child get there and we do that through lots of exposure with these toys and lots of opportunities to play and so we just look for every cause and effect toy that we can find and we show them what's happening. We talk about it. We find a motivational piece in there. Is there some kind of character they like or some kind of action they like? Do they enjoy music? Can we really teach them with a variety of music toys to really go for it, really learn to do different things, to push and pull and... Uh, what uh, you know, some there's some voice activated toys where they have to vocalize to get the music to play, and so think about that and think about how you can teach those cause and effect things. The good news is most baby toys and most toddler toys have some kind of cause and effect component. So go to the store and get yourself, you know, think, uh, think through. We're going to talk about this in the therapy tip of the week that I hope to get done today if I get finished with the show and can can get it done before my first little friend gets here. Uh, therapy tip of the week to really think about how you can take different toys and what skills you're targeting with that and why that's so important and so again cause and effect super important and then the next big cognitive skill of course is simple problem solving so does a child understand if I do one thing and it doesn't work what do I do next can I move on if I can't get the the square block to fit in the round hole what do I do do I keep trying with the other shapes in the toy? Do I put the square down and find the round piece that goes in that piece? Do I hand it to mom so she can help me? Do I look at mom so she can help me? Um, do I grab mom's hand? You know, that's, that's not always... It's not always atypical, right? And so that simple problem-solving piece is so important because kids really learn. Not only do I have to do something to get something, but I'm at which we learned in cause and effect, but I may have to do something different <laughs> to get what I want. So that's such an important thing. And kids learn that through play because play with toys is, is so much about trial and error. And they really do have an opportunity to, okay, the door does not open when I pull it, but will it open when I push it? Or do I have to slide it? Or do I have to open it, you know, from the bottom? And so they learn those different things through those experiences that they gain through play. So that's why a variety of toys is so important so that a child really, again, has those opportunities to really learn new things cognitively, but then to really hone his fine motor skills and to try to do some different things there too. One of the biggest things that I like to teach parents and that we talk about all the time, and if you are a member or if you are a participant or subscriber, that's probably a better word. If you get my emails, if you're on my email list, it's one thing that I have sent out over and over and over again is this post that I've written and it comes straight from uh, this therapy manual, let's talk about talking, uh, is stay and play. And so you have to teach parents or play and stay, however you want to say it. 
You got to whatever part they're not doing. A lot of parents, first of all, don't know that they have to play with their children, meaning you have to get down on the floor and you have to show a child how to do it. And you don't just show a child how to do it, you play yourself. So you're really playing. And so you've got to, again, you can't just yell out from the couch, oh, put the red ring on. The red ring goes next. Yeah, grab that. That's it. Okay, now pick it up. And no, coaching like that with a toddler to learn how to play. No, you've got to get down there and show him. You've got to help them. You can't just do the telling part from up on the couch or as you're walking through the room or like, you're trying to put the truck piece in the car piece in the puzzle. That doesn't work. Look, move it over to the truck. You can't do it like that. You've got to be sitting down there with them and eye to eye and face to face and on the floor. And so that playing piece there. And then not only do you have to play, you have to stay. Kids aren't going to learn anything in 30 seconds. They're just not, especially with our little guys who are not typically developing. And they're not typically developing if they're not talking on time. They're just not. And I don't want that to hurt your feelings if you're a parent. Gosh, you know, and I've shared on the show before, our oldest son, who's now 30, <laughs> was not typically developing. Uh, he had a lot of quirks and had some really big sensory uh, issues. He did not have a language delay, so I can't really identify with that. But at the same time, he had, so, he had some academic problems with learning how to read. And so as a parent, when you hear my child is not typically developing or my child has special needs or my child has some learning differences, that could be a tough pill to swallow. And I haven't had the same experiences as you, but I certainly have experienced that from a mom perspective. And it's totally different than being a therapist. And as I've said over and over, you know, he had, with his academic problems, I bawled my eyes out at every IEP. I mean, it got to the point where he was old enough to say to me, hey, mom, please don't cry like that today. I know we've got that meeting, but can you please not cry? And he would even say things like, is dad coming? I mean, he knew that I would never miss a meeting, but he wanted dad there because dad wasn't going to cry. Dad was objective and strong and smart and could, oh, such a great dad. But he also, again, emotionally wasn't like, um, he didn't have a mama's heart like I had. And so it's totally, totally different when it's your own child. So I get that. I get that. But you've got to look at this objectively and you've got to say, I'm going to have to do some things differently for this child than I've done for my other children or from what I expected or from what I read on the mom blog. You're just going to have to do it. And as a therapist, you have to tell parents that. You have to help them understand it. You have to help them get there. If you've had, if you're a mom and you've had a child with a difference, even if it's a difference, again, you know, my, uh, my child that had, had these issues didn't have a language problem, but he had so many other issues that I could really, really relate to that, that gut-wrenching feeling that you get with this isn't always this is not going like I expected. This is not going as I would hope. And so you've got to share those experiences. And even if you're not a mom as a therapist, you can really empathize. You can just put yourself in that mom's place, but really help them get there with understanding not only, you know, yeah, my child has this issue, but I'm going to have to do a lot of things differently. I'm going to have to spend more time on this. I'm going to have to be more patient. I have to address, uh, adjust my expectations here. I have to address these issues, these emotional issues that I have inside my own heart about this so that they really, really, again, can get where they need to be to be in the best position to help their children. And a lot of times this comes through these conversations, not about this language stuff or about 
any other like big motor thing, a lot of times it comes down to something as simple as saying, hey, you're going to have to play with him every day. You're going to have to get down on the floor with him every day. You're going to have to do it not only every day, but you're going to have to do it in the morning and you're going to have to do it again in the afternoon and you're going to have to do it again at night because this is going to take a big time commitment if you really want to see any kind of major progress here. And you're just going to have to say that. And again, as a therapist, if you've been a mom with a kid that, or, or your own self where, where you've really struggled with something, use that and really call upon that emotional experience and how you felt with that with, with meeting a mom where she is and talking her through that and helping her understand that her level of time commitment is and her dedication is just going to have to be different because that's what her child needs. So, all right, play and stay, super, super important part. And identify what part is it that the parent can't do. Is it that they don't know how to play? I've worked with a lot of parents who really don't know how to play. They don't know how to do it. And that's where as therapists we model and we say, I want you to watch me. I want you to watch my face. I want you to listen to how excited I sound when I'm playing. I want you to see that I'm really down here playing too. I'm not just holding the toy and, you know, doing the blah, blah, blah narration. I'm in there playing. I'm taking a turn. I'm holding the car. I'm pushing the buttons. And so you talk to parents about that. Or is it that just parents are so distracted? They've got good play skills and they, they know what to do with their children, but they're just gone. I mean, maybe they have job demands and they're answering the email or you know, maybe they're addicted to social media and all they want to do is scroll the whole time. And so, again, they're like the phoned in parents that are just yelling from across the room, get get that, that piece is not going to fit in the pot. You know, you've got to really talk about that. So figure out which piece it is. If they miss it, the play piece or the stay piece and help parents do it. The other thing that we need to do, we've already talked about, is really offer toys that teach a variety of motor actions. And I already mentioned the therapy tip of the week that I want you to watch with um, how to how to help a kid learn how to play. And so watch that because we're going to walk through how important variety is so that kids learn. I don't just do one thing with a toy. I've got to develop a lot of different motor schemes or motor actions to be able to operate a variety of toys. And so uh, that's a really, really important part. So what do you do with kids who, again, don't have very much interest in toys, who don't seem to really know what to do with a the toy? They're looking at it. They're they're sort of going to stay with you, but what do you do for a kid who really can't play? Well, you start with deconstruction. And I did a therapy tip of the week uh, about this several years ago, and it, I'm not going to redo it because I don't think I can do any better than that job that I did originally. But I'll try to link it here with this show. You, deconstruction means instead of putting the toy together or instead of doing what is naturally expected, what you think it's going to do, you undo it. So with like a ring stacker, instead of putting the rings on the toy, and again, we mostly start with deconstruction at the, the stage of, uh, non-functional play or really really beyond that 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 next little stage with functional play so with like a ring stacker or with a problem-solving toy like a puzzles you take the pieces out instead of putting the pieces in so you undo you start by taking it apart so uh, watch that therapy tip of the week because I'm going to show you in that therapy tip of the week exactly what to do so things like pop beads instead of putting them together you pull them apart with a Mr. Potato Head which is a little bit more advanced toy instead of putting those pieces in the potato head you take them out instead of a baby doll putting clothes on take those baby doll clothes off and think about that with typically developing children don't they start there with a lot of toys they do instead of always instinctively knowing what to do with a toy once you get them started playing 
that's where they start. They start at the end. So instead of um, putting the car, let's say you have a little swirly racetrack or a garage and that's got an elevator. Instead of doing that at the beginning, instead of like putting the car in so that it can go down the racetrack or instead of putting the car in the elevator to make it go up, they almost always start with the go down part or with the undo part. So think about other ways that you can start at the end instead of starting at the beginning with play. And that's a really, really important uh, important concept to teach parents, too. I've done a lot, a lot with kids who a lot of this deconstructive play for a long time. Like, I will build the stack of Legos and let a kid take it off, take it off, take it off, take it off. I mean, we might have to do that for weeks and weeks and weeks before I even start to think he's ready to put it on or before he starts to show me that he's ready to put it on. And so teaching a parent that, teaching a parent that your part in play is going to be to introduce it, to get it going, to start the play, to start the play routine, to complete the puzzle or put the pieces in potato head or or set up the toy, and then your child's job is going to be than to do the playing or the taking it apart or the doing the, the next step or the last step. And so talk to parents about that, how they can do it. And if you've never done that as a therapist, please read about that and let's talk about talking or watch that therapy tip of the week to really master that skill because it's such an important way to teach toys, teach play with toys, especially with our little guys who don't know how to do it or who don't seem interested. And lots of my little guys with autism, this is where we start in therapy. It's me really talking to parents about play. And we're doing other things. We're doing we're doing social games. You know, I'm the social game queen. You know, we're doing that. But when we really are moving on beyond responding to people and starting to look at some of these other skills, this is where we start with learning deconstruction during play. So take a look at that therapy tip of the week. The next thing that we want to be sure that we're doing with functional play too is helping a child use familiar objects correctly during everyday routines. And so a lot of times as parents, it's just so easy to do everything ourselves for a child. And so we really want to give them an opportunity to start to do some of these things too. So Things like using utensils when you're eating. I'll just tell you, unless a child is using tools during play, he's not going to get there. So talk to parents about those connections and that you are building the foundation for a child to be able to use familiar objects correctly and that a child has to have an opportunity to do those things in daily routines. And so sometimes I think we get it backwards. We work on all these skill-based things like self-feeding or... Uh, you know, again, we're talking about the potty training example that we were talking about earlier with a kid learning how to pull his pants down and pull his pants back up. But we're not realizing these are kids who have terrible play skills. And so they're not really using their hands and they're not using objects. They have, again, that's called tool use. They're not doing that. And so talk to parents about that connection. And not only do they need to be doing those skill-based things, the way we get to those skill-based things is that we uh, work on these same kinds of skills during play. So those are our main strategies for looking at how to um, help a child learn how to play appropriately with a variety of toys. And so, again, figure out where a child is in this whole continuum with that. Figure out where they are in those stages of play, and then you're going to meet them there and expand what they can do in that stage and then bump them up. And the best, one of the best things about getting the let's, uh, talk about talking manual is that you get so many ideas of what you can do and let's just sort of run through some of these with the stages so for stage one exploratory play 
So sensory exploration with the uh, toys and familiar objects, what do you do for that? Well, it's what we talked about back in skill one. We get lots of different things for a child to feel and to look at. So visuals, visual information that he has to process toys that produce sound so auditorily he's got something to listen to and so we really we really uh, facilitate all that sensory exploration by giving him new things to listen to and look at and taste and feel and so that's stage one so you match those toys so like touchy-feely books and again like toys that have lights and toys that have sounds and toys that have different things that again the different different textures so that a child can process that information. Stage two, non-functional play. What do we do there? What toys would support that beyond that exploration? So container play is so good for this kind of kid uh, because they really learn, again, to do a lot of different things with objects. They're mostly putting them in and dumping them out. And that is such, oh gosh, it's such a marker for kids when they start to really be able to put things in and out of containers. And when they take two balls and bang them together, when they start to throw something across the room so that they can see and then they throw something else and you start to think well gosh he's seeing he, he's not just throwing here he's really looking at how far these objects are going and he's really looking at can I make it go farther where's that going to land when it leaves my hand all those different things that's non-functional play because he's not using toys in the way that it's intended but he's using toys <laughs> and so that's an important marker so when you have kids again who aren't interested in toys at all you might start there with those kinds of things. Well, not you might start, you should start with that kind of non-functional play. The next stage, again, beginning functional play. You begin to play appropriately with familiar toys. So what's required there? Familiar toys. <laughs> so things like blocks and books and balls and cars and baby dolls. Just where the kinds of things that you would find uh, in the most basic section of the toy department. And again, families who have uh, economic disadvantages it's going to be a little bit harder for those families but you've got to help them see how important play is and develop and look look at what they already have and you know if there's some household objects they can use for that sort of thing great if there are holidays coming up and and grandma's asking mom saying well his grandmother wants to know what to get him you sit there and say these are the toys that would be good for him let me give you some ideas if you don't know, refer them to somewhere. Go to Teach Me to Talk. <laughs> so you can look at some of those examples there. So again, you're really matching toys and activities for where a child is currently functioning with his play skills. And once he really is great at that stage, that's when you bump him up to the next level. And so look at stage four, early symbolic play. So beginning pretend play with common objects. So what would you need? common objects <laughs> so you've got to get uh, things like a, a bowl and a spoon and a cup and a brush and a hat and some shoes you know things that you can use where a kid first learns to use those little objects on himself during play where it's a real play experience like he's not that he's getting a hat on to go outside that's important but he puts the hat on just to play with you and then he puts the hat on you and then he puts the hat on a character or a baby doll and so again, that's how kids learn how to do that. And so I've done a whole show about beginning pretend play with common objects. It's seven uh, steps. I think it's show number 382. So go back and look at that. If you have a kid who's who not really pretend playing yet, but he's great with puzzles and he likes shape sorters, you know, all those constructive toys, he's good with that. And he's, you know, he understands to blow the bubbles and he knows to flip the pages in a book, but he's just not quite there yet. 
Go back and look at those seven steps to teaching pretend play because you can get him there if you will walk through those seven steps. And again, like I mentioned before, those are the most common steps. That's usually where we're going to find a kid who you are still uh, really, really concerned about pre-linguistic skills. So a kid who's not really communicating yet is usually in that the first four stages. Now we may have some kids who have just straight expressive language delays. Our friends who truly are late talkers, meaning everything else is in place. It's just a talking piece, but the kicker is almost every parent, when they first start to realize their child is not talking yet, they think that's the only issue, and a lot of times it's so much more than that. They're not, it's not that they're not saying words, they're not understanding words. And then that, that cognitive piece is disrupted again because we know that their, their play skills aren't good. And parents don't really know that because they don't have other experience and haven't had other children, or they just think that for some reason you know they're appreciating their child's um, individualism and they're not realizing gosh he really should be doing this like all the other babies and so you've got to really really again sort out where things are but this first four stages of play if you can master that as a therapist with knowing where kids are and knowing what activities you need to do not only to help them master the skills on that level but bump them up to the next level and you got to be able to teach parents how to do that then you're going to be well on your way to using play to really, really support language development. And that's our whole purpose for all of these 11 skills is to be able to take a skill, understand how it relates to language development, understand how to make it better, how to make it richer, how to make it more consistent and more frequent, and then be able to share that with parents so that they understand that and can do that all day long, every day even when you are not there. All right, so that's it for today. Again, if you have not gotten my therapy manual, uh, let's talk about talking. Take a look at that. You can find information about that in the link uh, in the post below. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on iTunes or another podcast platform, uh, my website is teachmetotalk.com and the book is Let's Talk About Talking. And if you're a therapist, don't forget, you can get one hour of CE credit for this course for only five bucks, which is the best deal ever. All right, thanks so much for joining me. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and this has been teachmetotalk.com's podcast.